Well, hey everyone, my name is Norton. <clears throat> Thanks for joining us again. This is part 3B of our series, People of the Book. And in part three, we tackle the question of who preserved the Bible? How did it get preserved? Was it preserved well? Was it preserved accurately? Because we don't have the original documents that the gospel writers or Paul or any of the others actually wrote. We only have copies of copies of copies of copies. So how do we know that the ancient manuscripts weren't corrupted along the way? And we looked at a ton of evidence uh, in the last message related to the New Testament documents specifically. And hopefully what I showed you is that when you compare the New Testament documents to all other ancient documents you actually see that they were way, way, way better preserved than anything else we have from ancient history. It's not even close. Now, if you did not hear the last message, part three, then you just need to stop right now. Somehow you got to this one, but you didn't hear the last one. Stop right now, hit pause, and go listen to part three because I'm not gonna review everything we discussed in that message. And, and everything we discussed there really serves as a foundation uh, for what we're going to talk about today. I'm just going deeper. I'm going to give you some supplemental content as we've been doing, but it really builds on, on everything from part three. So um, go listen to that if you haven't first. Uh, today, we are going to dig deeper in two very specific ways. Uh, we'll talk about the Old Testament. Uh, we'll get to that in, in a little bit. Uh, but first, I want to pick up where we left off with the New Testament. Because I told you at the end of that message that we have about 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Sheets of uh, papyrus or parchment uh, from tiny little fragments to whole sheets to entire codices. Uh, a codex is like a book. And uh, these manuscripts, these um, Greek fragments and parts and codices, they've been dated from anywhere between the early 2nd century all the way to the 15th century. So, what do you do when you have a whole bunch of different copies of, let's say, for instance, the book of Luke, and they're not all exactly the same? What if there are differences in the copies that we have? And this is what's called a textual variant. Now, I'll probably use that term a, a ton. Uh, so, so let me explain what a textual variant is. It's when you have two different texts, right? Two different copies of the same text. And there's a variant between the two texts, meaning they don't say exactly the same thing in a specific sentence or passage. Uh, maybe one text says... Uh, in this verse, you know, Jesus went to Jerusalem and the other text says Jesus went to Galilee. That's a textual variant. There's a difference there. One of these is correct or, or one of these is the original and one of them is not. And so scholars look at these two texts and they try to determine which one is original, which one is the correct one, which one is the one that Luke actually wrote. Did Luke actually originally write that Jesus went to Galilee and somewhere along the way, hundreds of years later, when this manuscript is copied over and over and over, somehow the word Jerusalem got replaced uh, or replaced Galilee. 
Or was it vice versa? Was it originally Jerusalem and Galilee replaced that? So, um, of course, scholars are trying to figure out which is original, and they're also trying to figure out how did this change get made? Was this a mistake? Was this an intentional change that was made? And so this whole process of looking at a, a textual variant or a bunch of textual variants and trying to determine which one is true to the original, this whole process is called textual criticism. Uh, criticism not in sort of the negative sense of the word of being critical of someone else, but criticism in the sense of um, critically looking at these different texts and drawing conclusions about which one is true to the original and how the text got corrupted uh, along the way. So uh, I want to describe to you how this is done just so that you can get a better understanding of it. Um, we, I mean, we never talk about this kind of stuff in church, uh, but academics deal with this all the time. And so I want to describe to you how this is done and give you some common examples of textual variants that exist in the New Testament. And of course, part of the reason I'm doing this is because there's a question always happening in the background. It's the question we've been asking in this whole series. Do these textual variants, does the presence of textual variants cast doubt on the reliability of the text? Because if I'm honest with you, um, there are, and I will be honest, right? There are a lot of textual variants when it comes to the New Testament manuscripts. There are a ton of textual variants, differences between the different copies that we have. And when you first hear that truth, whether this is the first time you're hearing it or, or you've heard that before, I don't know about you, but for me, that raises a lot of suspicions. Wait, there's a lot of differences in all the copies we have? That means there's a lot of mistakes. That means there was a lot of corruption. That raises all kinds of doubts. And so I, I want to be very honest with you today about the number of textual variants, the kinds of textual variants that we have in the New Testament documents, and then how scholars deal with them. And I want to be honest about that for two reasons. Number one, A, um, it's not something to hide, right? It's part of the work that scholars do with these ancient documents, all ancient documents. And so hiding it um, or keeping it a secret or pretending that it's not true of the Bible, just like it is of all ancient documents, I don't think that helps at all. Um, but but number two, uh, or B, I think I'm, I did both there, uh, as I've tried to show in several different ways in this series, the more I understand about this process, the more I understand about how we got the Bible and where it came from and how it was written and how it was preserved, and even the more that I understand about textual criticism itself, it actually enhances my trust of the Bible. It doesn't diminish it. So uh, let's jump in. One of the reasons there are lots of textual variants when it comes to the New Testament is simply because we have so many manuscripts. We have, as I said, about 5,000 Greek manuscripts, and they're dated to a very long period of time from the second century uh, to the 15th century when the, the printing press begins to be used. Um, Julius Caesar's writing on the Gaelic War, we talked about that in the last message, we only have 12 manuscript copies of that. 
And, and the time period of those 12 manuscript copies is from about the 10th century to the 14th century. So, so it makes sense we would have exponentially more textual variants in the New Testament documents than you would see in the Gaelic War documents because we have exponentially more manuscripts. And they're over a much longer period of time where the possibility and chance of, of mistakes or corruption is just so much higher, right? And, and here's the thing. If you see a variant... Let's say you have a manuscript that says Jesus went to Jerusalem and then suddenly you, you have a text manuscript that says Jesus went to Galilee, right? Well, then what you're going to do is you're going to look at all of the versions of Luke that you have and you're going to see what all of them say, right? And because you're trying to determine which one is true, which one is authentic, which one is earlier, and so at this point, when you're doing this work of textual criticism, let's ask this question. Is it better to have 12 copies? Or is it better to have hundreds of copies? Would you rather have 12 copies to make comparisons and draw conclusions about? Or would you rather have hundreds of copies to compare and draw conclusions about? Well, the obvious answer is you want a whole lot more. The more manuscripts you have, and the older that they are, and the more time periods that they come from, and even different parts of the world that they've been found in, the much better you can actually solve this issue. You just have so much more evidence and so much more data with which to tackle the issue and begin to discover why is there a textual variant, where did it come from, and what is most likely the original version. It's actually uh, the scholars who work with all of the other uh, documents of ancient literature. They're the ones that are frustrated because they just don't have near as much data or near as much evidence to work with. But when you come to the New Testament, there is so much documentary evidence to work with. that The scholars reach the point where they're, they're really confident in, in like 95% of the conclusions that they reach about textual variants because they just have so much evidence and data to work with. Now, I've been sort of talking about this in general terms. Let's get super specific. There are two kinds of textual variants you find in all of these copies of manuscripts that we have. Uh, the first would be called unintentional errors. So this is where a scribe, and I talked about the process of scribes copying these, and later it was monks copying these. So a scribe is copying a manuscript. Maybe the old manuscript is disintegrating and falling apart, and it's time to make a new version. And uh, the scribe is either doing it at a desk where he has the old manuscript there, and he's reading it word for word, or sometimes another scribe would read out loud the existing manuscript while the, the scribe writes down uh, the new manuscript, but sometimes an unintentional error gets made, right? And the most common errors we find in textual variants are misspellings, uh, changing the word order by accident, right? The original work says, Jesus went to Jerusalem quickly, and the scribe writes down, Jesus went quickly to Jerusalem, right? Simple mistake, easy to make, right? Or maybe substituting a different word into the phrase by accident, or maybe even adding a word in there, right? 
Uh, writing in the new copy, Jesus went on to Jerusalem instead of just Jesus went to Jerusalem. So we're talking about very simple, unintentional errors. And this is by far the most common textual variant we find in New Testament studies. It's a simple mistake. Uh, Sometimes it's a misspelling. And it doesn't really change the meaning of the verse or the sentence in question at all. Uh, It's pretty easy and even obvious for scholars to figure out how the mistake was made. Even when when something, there's some cases of when there's a word that's misspelled or it's spelled differently in a different version. And it slightly changes the meaning of the word. (laughs) And even in those cases, scholars have a ton of evidence to begin to figure out which one is right. So let me give you an example. This is where a misspelling or a different spelling happens, and it actually changes the meaning of the word. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, if you have a Bible, you can look it up, but I'll just read it for you. This is what it says in English. This is the NIV version. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word for uh, we have in English, it's just one word, um, and it's the word ekamen, ekamen. The vowel in the very middle of that word is the Greek uh, letter omicron. It's like our short O. That's the ah sound in eka men, eka men. But if you change that vowel, that little O in the middle of the word that is actually a Greek omicron, if you change it from an omicron to an omega, which is another Greek letter, another Greek vowel, omega is the long O sound. It's not ah, it's O. If you change it from ah to o, then now it's ekomen, not ekamen. Now, ekamen and ekomen are very close. They sound very similar, and they're just two forms of the same verb. In Greek, ekamen means we have peace. Ekomen means it's the subjective, uh, subjunctive form of the verb, which if you remember your grammar, you might know what that means, but you probably don't at all. Um, ekomen means let us have peace. So ekomen, we have peace. Ekomen, let us have peace, which is a slightly different variation on the verb. So which is it, right? Some ancient manuscripts have ekomen, some ancient manuscripts say echo men. Well, the first thing that scholars do is um, they look at the manuscript evidence, right? If all of the manuscripts from the second century to the eighth century say one thing, and then suddenly the manuscripts that we have from the eighth century on say something different, well, then it's clear that an error was made about the 8th century, and the first reading, the earlier reading, is the correct one. Now, it's it's rarely that clear, uh, but that's how it's done. And I have a Greek New Testament 
I'm looking at it right now. It's sitting in front of me. I bought this when I was in seminary. Um, it's what all uh, Greek students have to buy and, and learn and learn how to read. And it has all sorts of different notes. And whenever there is a variant like this, meaning whenever there's a, a, a reading where there's two options and you have some ancient manuscripts that say one thing and some ancient manuscripts that say something else, a Greek New Testament has a big note there in the Greek text. And at the bottom of the page, it will list the two different options. And then it will list all of the different manuscripts that contain the first reading or the first option, and then all of the different ancient manuscripts that have the second reading or the second option. And there's an index that you have that lists the names of all of those different ancient manuscripts and when they've been found and what we know about them. And so you can look which manuscripts have the first reading, which manuscripts have the second reading, and you can start to make some conclusions based on that. In the Romans 5.1 case, guess what? It's about half and half. Some of the oldest manuscripts have ekamen. Some of them have ekomen. Now, there's more to this that I can't go into. There's different sort of families of manuscripts in different parts of the world that different manuscripts come from. So you kind of look at that as well. But that's the first thing you look at. Which manuscripts say which reading? And sometimes just doing that helps you determine which one is probably original. The second thing you look at is what would make sense in the context of the passage itself. And when you read this passage in context, you read the book of Romans and you read what Paul is saying in this part of his letter, it seems like what Paul is saying is, these are the results of having been justified with God, right? If you have been justified or since you have been justified with God, and then it makes a whole lot more sense to follow that up with, since you have been justified with God, we have peace with him, right? That our peace with God is a product of our justification, a result of our justification. Since we've been justified, we are now at peace with God. That makes a whole lot more sense then. Since we have been justified with God, let us have peace with God. That almost sounds like we still need to do some work to be at peace with God. We've been justified with him, but now we have to receive peace with him, and that comes after being justified. Or, or, or maybe a different way he could have said it would be this, you have been justified or we have been justified, but now we need to embrace the peace that is available to us because we have just been justified. Uh, so since we have been justified, let us have peace. Let us embrace the peace. Let us receive the peace. That would be ekomen. Ekomen would be the simpler we have peace with God. Now that makes a whole lot more sense for most scholars and it makes more sense in my mind, right? So scholars conclude pretty quickly that it was ekamen. We have peace. And that at some point a really easy mistake was made, right? And one little letter, an omega instead of an omicron was substituted 
And so some manuscripts say echomen, some manuscripts say echomen. But here's the deal. Even the NIV, as certain as most scholars are that it's probably echomen and not echomen, even the NIV puts a little footnote on this verse. And so if you open it up, it said, we have peace with God. And then there's a footnote that says, many manuscripts say, let us have peace. So even an English reader knows some manuscripts say this, and that's what we think it is. That's what's in the text. But here's an option that you need to know about. This is a possibility that we just couldn't fully eliminate, right? So this is, these are the kind of textual variants we're talking about. And the overwhelming majority of textual variants fall into this category of simple mistakes that even when you have the word changing meaning, it doesn't change any significant meaning or any significant bearing. I mean, the two options I gave you aren't even really that different, right? We have peace now or let us embrace the peace that is offered to us, right? It doesn't have any significant bearing at all on the overall text. So those are unintentional errors. And as I said, this is the majority In fact, the overwhelming majority of textual variants fall into this category. Now, the second category of variants would be intentional errors. And that would be when a scribe intentionally changed something because he thought that the original was an error or he thought that the original was problematic in some way. So maybe the original document... He gets to a sentence and the grammar is kind of awkward and the scribe decides to smooth it out a little bit. It just doesn't read very well. And he's thinking like, man, John made a mistake when he wrote this or his grammar just wasn't super polished or a scribe before him copied it wrongly and it's just a little awkward and so I'm going to smooth it out a little bit. And he just takes out one little word or changes something very slightly Right? Or maybe there's something unclear in the existing text, and so the scribe just adds a word to make it a little bit more clear. Or maybe there's a discrepancy, apparent discrepancy or an apparent inconsistency in the original text, and the scribe thinks, we can't have that in the Bible, and so the scribe actually decides to fix it. And, and it, this isn't malicious. There, there's no evil intent here. Uh, This is a scribe trying to actually fix or improve the text. And the majority of examples in this category of intentional errors are actually quite minor. So let me me give you a couple of examples. Um, Mark uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 2 says this. This is the very beginning of Mark's book. And he's, he, I'm picking up in the middle of it. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then he offers these quotes from the Old Testament. But some manuscripts say, as it is written in the prophets, and then provide the quote. So which is it? <laughs> which is the original that Mark wrote? Did he write, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet? Or did he write, as it is written in the prophets? Well, we'll start with the manuscript evidence. The manuscript evidence for the first reading, Isaiah the prophet, is earlier and it's more widespread. 
more of the earliest uh, manuscripts we have say Isaiah the prophet, and it's widespread across a bunch of different regions. The second reading, as it is written in the prophets, the word Isaiah is taken out and prophet is made plural, as it is written in the prophets, this actually comes from later manuscripts that we have, and it's less widespread. So it seems like it was changed at some point by a scribe where it originally said Isaiah the prophet, but the scribe changed it to in the prophets. And that raises the question, why? Why would a scribe change this from Isaiah the prophet to in the prophets? And there's actually a good reason. Because the two quotes that follow this, one is a quote from Isaiah And one seems to be possibly a quote from the prophet Micah. Now, by the way, Micah and Isaiah actually have a lot of similar quotes and and messages. We think they might have even been somewhat dependent on one another. And so there are verses and quotes that are very similar from the books of Isaiah and from the books of Micah. And so probably what happened is in Mark's original When Mark actually wrote this, he just wrote the prophet Isaiah, and then he offers a couple of quotes, both of which could have been connected to Isaiah. But a later scribe came to the conclusion that one of these quotes was from the prophet Micah. And so he's reading this and he thinks, well, Mark, you just said this is from the prophet Isaiah, but one of them is Isaiah and one is Micah. And Mark is actually quoting from two prophets. And so let's just take out the specific word Isaiah, just to kind of smooth things out because it seems like an apparent discrepancy in his mind, and he just changes it to the prophets rather than the prophet Isaiah. So one principle in textual criticism is that if everything else is equal, right? If you've looked at the documentary evidence and everything is equal there, then the harder and more difficult reading is probably the original. If there's two different readings and one of them is sort of awkward or difficult or or hard and one of them is smoother and easier, then guess what? The smoother and easier one was probably the change that was made by a scribe to clarify, to fix something, to smooth something out. So in this case, that principle that most scholars use suggests the original reading is probably Isaiah the prophet. Um, and, and that's also the reading that I said was supported by the earlier manuscripts. And so in this case, we have pretty good uh, evidence to suggest it's Isaiah the prophet, not this variant that shows up in a few manuscripts where it just says the prophets. Now, let me pause there and, and add something. Uh, scholars actually give ratings. They have a rating system when they draw conclusions about these variants. And so again, my Greek New Testament provides all of these notes at the bottom of the page. Whenever there's a variant that's debated, it tells you all the different manuscripts that the two options, or sometimes there's three options, show up in. And then it provides a rating of either A, B, C, or D. And essentially what that means is all the scholars that are working on putting together this Greek New Testament based on all the old ancient manuscripts for for people to study today, an A rating, if they put an A rating by this, it means we're really certain (laughs) 
about which reading is original. There's a lot of evidence pointing to which one is the original one and which one isn't. B means we're pretty sure, but there's a little bit of doubt. Uh, C means there's a considerable degree of doubt. Like there's evidence kind of on both sides. Uh, we're leaning this way, but there's, there's a considerable degree of doubt. And then D means this is a total toss up, right? There, there's two different options here and it, it really is 50-50, right? It's a high degree of doubt about which one is the correct one. So the two variants that I just showed you, there's the Romans 5-1 variant that I mentioned, the Echomen, Echomen, and then the Mark 1-2 variant of whether it's Prophet Isaiah or the Prophets. Both of those are classified as an A rating in, in, in the Greek New Testament. Like the evidence is pretty clear and most scholars are pretty clear on which one is original and which one was a change that was made later. So let me give you a, li- a really tough one, right? Let's, let's jump into the deep end. Um, there are almost no D ratings, by the way. <laughs> I mean, it, I was just flipping. I was thinking maybe I'll just throw in a D rating. And I started flipping. The, and I literally could not find a D rating. Now, I know there are some D ratings in there. But after flipping through my pages for five minutes, I couldn't find a D rating. And so I found a good C rating. So let's just do one of those. Because it's almost all A's and B's. And there's a few C's sprinkled in. So, so let me give you... A C rating. Ephesians 1.1 says this. Paul, and this is the NIV again. I'm reading the NIV English translation. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So this is the very beginning of Paul's letter to the people in Ephesus. That's why we call it Ephesians. But if you have an NIV, after the words in Ephesus, you have a little note there. And if you look at the bottom, the note says, some early manuscripts do not have the words in Ephesus. So that's the variant. We have some manuscripts that have the the two Greek words in Ephesus, And then we have some copies that have the same sentence in there, but the two words in Ephesus are not in there at all. Now, as I said, all the different manuscripts are listed in my Greek New Testament and scholars study this. And so if you look at the ancient manuscript copies we have, most of them do have the words in Ephesus. It's very well attested. It's found in most of the copies we have. It's found in a broad variety of manuscripts. It's also found in a whole bunch of quotes by the early church fathers, which, by the way, is a whole other category. We don't have time to talk about, but so many early church fathers in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century quoted the New Testament in their writings. So we actually have their writings to compare to as well. These are not New Testament documents, but they say, as Paul said in Ephesians, and then they provide a quote. And so that quote, if that comes from the second century, that's an important quote, and that provides some textual support as well. So the two words, in Ephesus, has a lot of textual support. But there are a handful of 
early manuscripts that don't contain those two words. It's not a lot, but there's a few really important ones. Specifically, there's a manuscript called P46, and so they give all of these manuscripts numbers and names, so it's really easy to sort of read and, and talk about them. Uh, P46 is part of the Chester Beatty Papyri Collection. I talked about that in the last message, and it's dated to about 150 to 200 AD. So it's one of the earliest manuscript collections we have, and in this one, in our copy of the book of Ephesians, of the letter of Ephesians, in P46 does not have the two words in Ephesus. Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, both from the fourth century. I mentioned those as well. Those are two of the most complete early manuscripts we have of the New Testament. And neither of those contain the words in Ephesus either. So while most of the copies we have do contain them, we have three kind of important pretty early documents that don't contain those three words. So if in Ephesus was original, but it was omitted by a scribe early on, that's one theory. And somehow that's why we have these three early documents that don't have it. Why would a scribe do that? You see, you're looking for reasons for why in Ephesus would have been added later or in Ephesus would have been taken out. The manuscript evidence suggests it was probably in there and at some early point, because we have a lot fewer manuscripts without it, at some early point, those two words were taken out. Why would a scribe do that? Why would a scribe take out this very specific reference to who Paul is writing to? Now, it could be an unintentional mistake, right? It was just missed. Like he's writing fast and he was having a bad day and he just forgot those two words and, and that's it. That's literally all it is. Another theory is that maybe the specific address of the letter was taken out by one scribe so that as this letter of Paul is being circulated and read by churches everywhere, it would begin to be heard as more universal. You see, if I heard it read and it's just written to the church at general, that applies to me. That applies to my community, to my city, to my church. When you remove the words to Ephesus, this book, this letter suddenly feels like a more universal letter that's written to me and to our community and to our church and not just something specific that Paul wrote for these specific people in Ephesus and it may not apply to me because of that, right? And there's a little bit of support for this theory because we also have a few old manuscripts of the letter to Romans and the two mentions of the word Rome in the letter to Romans in the first chapter are taken out of those as well. So maybe that's behind this. Maybe this is a scribe early on just trying to make this more applicable to a broader group of churches by removing the specific address. If that's what happened, then this again is the case of a scribe making a small revision for a well-intentioned purpose. But most scholars conclude the original is probably the longer reading. It's probably the more specific one. It's the one that's more attested. 
And so in Ephesus is likely the original, but this is one of those where scholars would say, you know, we're like 60 or 70% sure in Ephesus was in the original. And so they give it a C rating. We're pretty sure, but there's a little bit of doubt that you need to know about, right? It's possible. It's possible. And so again, in your NIV, there's a footnote in there that tells you that so that you know that that's a possibility. So those are the kinds of textual variants that dominate the New Testament. I gave you a few uh, examples. We could have gone through a whole lot more. And at this point, you might be thinking, all right, can you give us one more example that, that really calls into question something significant? Right? So, an example of a variant with really big theological or doctrinal implications, right? Right? There's got to be a variant in one of the gospel accounts where, where it says, like one version says Jesus rose from the dead. And then we have a whole bunch of other texts that say he did not rise from the dead. And we have to figure out, was it not or he did, right? Like, can you give us a really tough variant that, that challenges a core belief of the Christian faith? And the answer is no. No, I can't. I don't have an example like that. I mean, they, they, they literally just do not exist. There's not any textual variant debates that are like that. Um, there's a couple of bigger sections. There's, there's an ending to the book of Mark that now it's pretty clear it was added uh, significantly later and it's not part of the original version of Mark. And almost all... Um, uh, modern and contemporary uh, versions of the Bible either don't include it or have a big long footnote that say, hey, this was added later, but we'll just still throw it in there. Um, and, 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 and so Bibles just don't even include that anymore. There's one other story from the book of John, and uh, it's questionable. It's included in, it's, it's one of the few like whole stories, right? And it's questionable because it's included in some ancient manuscripts, but it's not included in others. And so most Bibles continue to include it. It's at the very end of John 7 and the beginning of John chapter 8. Most Bibles include it, but they'll put a really big note explaining, hey, um, the more we discover, the more we see there are some early manuscripts that don't have this story in it. So you just need to know it might be original, but it might not. And it's a great story. It's about a woman caught in adultery. You've probably heard this story and Jesus is really kind to her. Um, but even if it's not original, even if, even if we gain more evidence to conclude this was not original to John's gospel, even if we were to take this whole story out, there's nothing in that story that's essential to his message or to anything that Christians believe. There, there, there are just no textual variants like that that cast doubt on the core tenets of the New Testament or Christianity. And, and I have to be honest with you here, textual criticism is, is it's interesting, it's fascinating, it's complex, it requires tons of language and manuscript skills to navigate it. And it produces some, some fascinating debates among really nerdy scholars, right? About whether Paul wrote, let us have peace, or whether he wrote, we have peace. 
But that's pretty much the extent of the controversies that are involved here. If you're looking for Da Vinci Code-like conspiracies and cover-ups and corruptions in the New Testament documents, you're just not going to find them. I mean, you can go get a PhD in all this stuff and you can study it yourself and you can see it's just not there. So that's how textual criticism works. Now, I focused on the New Testament. Uh, There are also textual variants in the Old Testament. And the work of textual scholars is is kind of similar in the Old Testament. They're, you know, if they have a variant, they use certain ways to determine which one they think is original um, and which one isn't. Um, But there are also some nuances and differences uh, because Hebrew is a very different language than Greek. And the way the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible is preserved is somewhat different than the way the New Testament is preserved. So let me just touch on the Old Testament for a few minutes, and um, we're not going to go into too much depth here, and I'm not going to get too much into Old Testament textual criticism and how it's different, uh, because this is like a massive rabbit hole. Um, But I do want to introduce you really quickly to some differences in the way that the Old Testament was preserved Uh, Because in the last message, in part three, I I really just focused on the New Testament documents. And so you might have left that message wondering, like, that was great, but but what about the Old Testament? Is the Old Testament just as reliable? Um, Let let me touch on that um, for a few minutes. As I said, uh, there are some key differences with the Old Testament. First, remember, the Old Testament is compiled and edited somewhere between about 300 and 100 B.C., Um, There are certainly parts of the Old Testament that are originally written way before that, right? The Psalms and parts of the Torah, uh, the Law of Moses, all those kind of things. But the final version of the Hebrew Bible, when it's all compiled and edited and put together, happens sometime within a hundred or a few hundred years before the time of Jesus. Now, like the New Testament documents... From about the first century uh, B.C. um, through the time of Jesus to about the 5th century A.D., the Hebrew Bible is copied and reproduced by both Jewish scribes and by Christian scribes. Uh, Christians have kept the Hebrew Bible as their Old Testament, and so they circulate it and copy it with the New Testament. And and, and like I mentioned in in the last message, we have copies of, of the Old Testament from Christian scribes dated to the 4th and 5th centuries. Now, all of almost all of our copies that are done by Christian scribes are Greek translations of the Old Testament. This had become the dominant translation that, that Christians read, the Greek translation. So they're, they're, they're translations that are like the Septuagint that we talked about a few weeks ago, Greek translations of the original Hebrew Bible. It's the Jewish communities that primarily maintain the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament in its original Hebrew form. So it's Jewish scribes from about the 1st to the 5th century AD that copy the Hebrew Bible over and over and over. Now, this is a difficult time period uh, for the Jewish people. Um, Real quickly, in 66 AD, Uh, The Jewish people revolt against Roman rule, 
And Rome comes in and they put down the revolt and they destroy the temple in Jerusalem. All, all that's left are the ruins. And, and it's still like that today. That's why just the Western Wall is all that's left. There is no temple in Jerusalem from 70 AD on to the present. In 132 AD, there's a second Jewish revolt uh, against Rome and, and the rulers there. And Rome puts down that revolt uh, very forcefully as well. Um, many Jews uh, flee persecution by the Romans uh, during this time in the first and second centuries. Of course, this is the same time that the Christian movement is growing very slowly at first, but substantially in the second and third centuries. And so you have some Jewish scholars and scribes that stay in Palestine, in Jerusalem, and are doing their work of scholarship there and preserving the Hebrew Bible there. And then you have a number um, of Jewish scholars and scribes that are in Alexandria, Egypt, that have been there for quite a long time. And then you have a number of Jewish scholars and scribes that move to Babylon, or it's called often Babylonia, it's modern-day Iraq. Um, And there's a whole tradition of preserving Hebrew writings there as well. So there's kind of three different centers of of Hebrew, of the Hebrew uh, Academy at this time. And there's a significant amount of work that's taking place. And so you have the Bible being preserved in these different places. You have the Talmud, which is uh, commentaries and other writings related to rabbinical uh, teachings and the Bible itself and the Hebrew Bible. And there's different versions being produced in Babylon. There's different ones produced in, in Palestine. And uh, it's all done by different scribes until we get to the 5th century. And at the end of the 5th century, there's a group of scribes that become known as the Masoretes. And and between the 5th and the 10th centuries AD, the Masoretes work to perfect what becomes known as the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible. And let me explain what's going on here with this text, because it's directly related to how we read the Old Testament today. Um, And it's all related to the Hebrew language. Ancient Hebrew, the Hebrew of, uh, in the Old Testament time period, the Hebrew that was written before Jesus' day, ancient Hebrew is written only in consonants. There are no vowel letters in the ancient Hebrew alphabet. Uh, there's a couple of exceptions, but we won't talk about those. There's really only consonant letters. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't vowel sounds in spoken Hebrew, right? When the word Baruch was spoken, the word Baruch means to bless, right? It's the verb that means to bless something or to bless someone or to be a blessing. And so uh, the word Baruch is spoken But if you were to write that word down in ancient Hebrew, it would be written B-R-K. The the letters in Hebrew are actually named different things, but just I'll just use their English equivalents to make it simple. It would just be written B-R-K. And it's not that they had symbols for vowels or letters for vowels and they just left them out or forgot them. It's that they literally did not have alphabetic symbols for vowel sounds. And so it's written as B-R-K. But here's the thing. Depending on what vowel sounds you put in this word, you didn't pronounce it Burke, 
right? You, 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 you pronounce it a certain way, and depending on what vowel sounds you put in the word actually changes the meaning of the word. And so depending on the vowels, it might change the word from one verb to a different verb or from a verb to a noun, or it might even change the tense of the verb. And by the way, we do this in English. If I make the statement, I run, that's present tense. If I say, I ran, that's past tense. And the only thing that changed in that phrase is the vowel sound between the R and the N. It changed from a uh, a U sound, to an A, an A sound, right? But in our writing, we actually have a U symbol and we have an A symbol and we put that in there to tell us. And so when you see the U symbol, it's I run and you know that that's present tense. But if the A is in there, it's I ran and you automatically know that is a past tense. But in ancient Hebrew, there are not any vowel letters or vowel symbols. So if you're reading the ancient Hebrew Bible and it's only consonants, right? Well, how do you know how to read it? How do you know how to pronounce the different words? If you see BRK in a sentence, how do you know whether to read that as Baruch, Berek, Barukah? Because those three versions are three different words and they have three slightly different meanings. But as it's written, it's BRK in all three circumstances. Well, here's how the Jewish people knew how to read the Bible. Here's how they knew which vowel sounds to insert to give all of the meanings that are intended. They knew because the Hebrew Bible had always been read aloud to them in their culture. Very few people actually read the Hebrew Bible for reading. They heard the Hebrew Bible. For hundreds and hundreds of years, most Hebrew people didn't read anything. They just heard it read aloud. They heard it told aloud. Theirs was an oral and auditory culture. They memorized scripture aloud and they said it over and over and over and they sung it over and over and over. They knew how to pronounce it. They knew what all of the words meant, not because of the way it was written, but because they learned it by hearing it, not by writing it. So, the writing version is just continent, consonants, but people know the Bible because they've memorized it. But you get to the 5th century AD and it's the Masoretic Jewish scribes that say, you know what, we should probably document all of these vowel sounds. We, we should probably preserve the way it's supposed to be read, the way it's supposed to be heard, the way it's supposed to be understood. We should make that clear in the writing itself. It's not always clear in the Hebrew writing because the Hebrew writing just has the consonants. And so over the course of several hundred years, the Masoretic scribes, these are Jewish scribes, by the way, added three things to the Hebrew Bible. Uh, first, they added vowel sounds, and they did it in the form of little dots and marks above and below the existing consonants. So they don't invent new vowel letters and add those in between the consonants. So suddenly, the Hebrew Bible is like twice as long as it was before. It's the exact same length before as it was before. 
All the consonants are crammed together just like they were before, but they would put a little line or a dot or a mark underneath the consonant. So anytime you see a, a little uh, a little T symbol underneath a consonant, that means that an ah sound should follow this consonant. So it should be ba rock. If there's a little T symbol under the B and a little T symbol under the R. Now, if there are three little dots under the B and three little dots under the R, then that is a soft E sound, an eh. And so if you had that, then it would be be-rec, right? So they added the vowel sounds. They already knew how to pronounce it. That had been passed on orally and through tradition for hundreds of years. They just added the sound. So they're not making anything up. They're not adding new words. They're not adding new meaning. They're just putting into writing the vowel sounds that have already been passed down. So they add the vowel sounds. They add accent marks as well. So it's clear what emphasis to put on which syllables in a word and in a sentence. And then they also added additional marks and notes in the margins and like footnotes at the bottom of the page where the Masoretic scribes literally added up the number of consonants and the number of words in every single book on every single page. And they would count all of them and they would even figure out what is the center consonant or the center word in every single book. And they would put these notes at the bottom of the page. And you think, why in the world did they get hardcore on all this math and all this counting and all these statistics? And this is what's ingenious about these scribes. When a scribe is copying a new manuscript, a scribe can now count the number of words and consonants in the new copy that he's made to ensure that it exactly matches the words and the continents and the master that he's copying from. So that if a mistake ever happens, if there's a word that's skipped or a word that's missed or a page that's missed, it will be caught and mistakes won't be made. So, By about 1000 AD, we have versions of the Hebrew Bible that now have all of these additional marks, all of these additional notations to ensure that what did not exist in written form earlier, but only existed in oral form, is now in written form. And so that people that study the Bible and read the Bible from here on out can study it and read it aloud the way it's always been intended to read. And it's these versions of the Hebrew Bible that the Masoretic scribes develop. These are the versions that we have today. We have a number of codices that exist and are in really good shape from about 1000 AD. And they serve as the primary source of the Hebrew Bibles that we have. Uh, The Hebrew Bible that I purchased when I was in seminary and I use and, and almost all students and scholars of the Hebrew Bible use is based on a codex called the Leningrad Codex. Um, It's the oldest complete manuscript of the Hebrew Bible. It's dated to about 1008 AD, and it's it's currently um, in a uh, library in Leningrad or museum there, and that's why it's named after Leningrad. Now, until the early 1900s, we actually didn't have earlier versions of the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew. We have some other Hebrew writings that reference the Hebrew Bible and and some little scraps and things here and there, but 
And those are helpful in determining some of the accuracy of, of the Masoretic text or the Leningrad Codex. Um, and as we said, uh, as I've said all along, we have the Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible. We have Septuagint versions from much earlier, and those can be incredibly useful too. But like most other historical documents, the ones I told you about in the previous message, the oldest complete manuscript we have of the Hebrew Bible in its original Hebrew language comes from about 1,000 A.D., a thousand or eleven hundred or twelve hundred more years or more after it was originally written. And that is until the 1940s, when a huge discovery is made. In the late 1940s, the early 1950s, a discovery is made that changes the landscape of Hebrew Bible scholarship. You've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are a bunch of scrolls that were found in jars in caves along the Dead Sea. Uh, there are about a thousand different manuscripts that have been found in uh, 11 different caves, I think, and they've been dated to between the third century BC and the first century AD which is amazing. That is when the Old Testament was first being compiled and copied. And all of these manuscripts that have been found contain all kinds of different writings from that time period. So apparently we've learned a whole lot about the community living in this area. There was this community living in these caves or near these caves along the Dead Sea called the Qumran community. Qumran is, is the name of the area in that, uh, that, that near the Dead Sea. And we've learned a lot about this community. It's clear that they were like a monastic sect of Judaism. Uh, they were living in the wilderness. Uh, they were disillusioned uh, with the priests and the mainstream institutions of Judaism at that time. Um, they've been compared to the Essenes, if you've ever heard of that sect that was uh, prominent in Jesus' time. They're similar to John the Baptist type people. Um, these are people who have fled into the wilderness and they believe, uh, because they believe everything is corrupt that's happening in the institutions and this is where God wants them to be. And they had created this community in the wilderness. And so uh, many of the manuscripts that we found in these caves are actually, they're not biblical writings, they're other writings. Their, their writings about their community, their writings about things that they uh, believed uh, outside of sort of mainstream Judaism. And so we have to keep that in mind as well. This is not a mainstream Jewish community. And so there's things we've learned about this community. But these documents contain huge portions of the Hebrew Bible. Every single book of the Hebrew Bible except the book of Esther is found in these writings. Now, we don't know if Esther was excluded for some reason. Uh, maybe they didn't like the book. Uh, it's also highly possible that Esther was important to them, and it's just that the Esther scroll was lost or, or was not preserved. Um, some of the scrolls and manuscripts found in these caves are in really good condition. Uh, there's also a bunch of them that are tiny little you know, fragments um, and, and, and little pieces uh, let, let me tell you about one of them that is in really good condition. There is an Isaiah scroll that contains the entire book of Isaiah, 
which is one of the longest books of the Old Testament. Uh, This scroll is made of 17 sheets of leather uh, or animal hide parchment that is sewn together. It's about 10 inches tall. So that's about the the height of a normal sheet of of paper in our modern world. Uh, But it's 24 feet long. And the significance of finding a document like this, it just cannot be underestimated, right? For starters, we just went from a thousand years or more removed from our Masoretic texts of the 10th and 11th centuries AD, and now we have a complete version of the book of Isaiah in its original Hebrew produced and preserved within maybe a hundred or 200 years of when the Hebrew Bible was edited and compiled. Again, if you compare that to the other works from this time period, like Homer's, the Iliad, right? Remember, that was nine, the best copy we have is 900 years removed. You begin to see how amazing and astounding this discovery was. Uh, even more amazing is how close these texts are to the Masoretic text that dates a thousand years later. The Dead Sea Scrolls version of Isaiah and the Masoretic text version of Isaiah from a thousand years later are almost identical. There are just a handful of little differences in the book. And of course, scholars now have to look at those differences because they have these textual variants. And, and most of them are, you know, this, the, these unintentional errors or, or a misspelling or something that was left out. And so, so now they have these new textual variants to, to work with and to figure out. And, and as I said, they also have the Greek translation of the Old Testament from that same time period. So they have the later Masoretic texts. They now have all of these new Hebrew versions in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Greek translations of the Old Testament. And they can take all of those and again, work with them to figure out these textual variants. Now, I could go on and on because again, talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls is like a never-ending rabbit hole because even though they were discovered in the 1940s and 50s, it's only recently in the last 30 years or so, that high-resolution digital... I mean, these these discoveries are very fragile. They've been under lock and key, so not every scholar who wants to look at the Dead Sea Scrolls can actually go look at them. So only in the last 30 years or so have high-resolution digital copies been made available for scholars to study. And so right now, it's like every year there is an explosion of new research and journal articles and conclusions and scholars engaging with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there's just new significance coming out every single year. So uh, so this is a huge area of study that, that we just don't have time to talk about. But for our sake, here's what you need to know. And I'm going to wrap up because I know this is getting long. The Old Testament is incredibly well documented. The work of the Masoretic scribes over hundreds of years was meticulous in not only preserving the written text of the Hebrew Bible, and it's clear they preserved it really well when you compare it to the Dead Sea Scrolls, but in also preserving the meaning and the purpose 
and how it's to be read and the overall message. And then, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls are this revolutionary discovery that validates so many conclusions scholars had already drawn about the Hebrew Bible, but were just implications, right? But now the Dead Sea Scrolls validate so much of that, and we have copies of the Hebrew Bible that come from right at the same time of Jesus. There's all sorts of new data to be studied and learned from. Now, of course, for your normal, average, ordinary person, these topics are, are, are hard to understand for a lot of reasons. Um, the first and foremost is, is that you don't know Hebrew, probably, or you don't know Greek, right? And if you don't know Hebrew or Greek, then you can't really read the original Hebrew Old Testament or Greek New Testament. And unless you're from Israel or Greece, and even in Israel or Greece, modern Hebrew and modern Greek are different than ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek, right? So, so how in the world could a normal average person understand all of this stuff or really any of this stuff, let alone even read the Bible for yourself if you don't know these languages? Well, you already know the answer to that, right? You read an English translation, which raises a new question. Can you really trust the translations that you're reading? And how do you know which one is best? Well, that's what we're going to tackle next time. I hope you'll keep listening. Thanks for listening today.